Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features the full speaker series talk from Jonathan Capehart, an opinion writer and member of the editorial board at the Washington Post and a regular contributor on MSNBC. Over the next hour, you'll hear Jonathan's thoughts on civil rights, partisan values and the media, including discussion of the Black Lives Matter movement, marriage equality, 2016 presidential candidates and more. Remember, you can hear audio from all of our speaker series events, lectures, and podcasts at shorensteincenter.org. So, hi, everybody. I, I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the uh, acting director of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, will be maybe for the full year until we find a replacement for Alex Jones, uh, my normal uh, job here is the research director at the Shorenstein Center, and uh, I'm the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at the at the Kennedy School. Uh, we're very fortunate to have Jonathan Capehart here uh, today. Uh, I'm from Minnesota. Jonathan has a four-year Minnesota stint uh, in his background, um, and uh, he's a member of the Washington Post uh, editorial board and writes for the Post. Um, I'm sure many of you have seen him uh, on MSNBC, where he makes frequent appearances. Um, his background includes time at the New York Daily News, part of the uh, Mayor Bloomberg's uh, uh, mayoral campaign, one of those campaigns, uh, also uh, time at uh, Bloomberg News. Uh, we're just delighted to have you with us, Jonathan. Thank you, Tom. Yes, that's the formal introduction. Thank you very much, Tom, for, for your introduction, for having me here today, for the invitation. I was saying to Tom after you know he and Tim both talked about all the people who've been here before, I'm doubly honored to be in, in the group of people who've been here. Um, don't be afraid by the papers I have in front of me. I'm a writer, so I like to write down what I'm going to say um, in giving remarks. but. Um, as Tom mentioned, I, I'm a, on the editorial board of the Washington Post, and I write exclusively for our postpartisan blog. And I write about national politics and social issues. And um, when people ask me, what exactly do you mean by social issues, I say I write about black stuff and gay stuff. So since I'm both black and gay and an opinion writer, I feel compelled to write about anything and everything about those aspects of my identity. And as you can imagine, those two pieces of, of my identity have been in the news and have gotten a workout over in at least the last three years. And during that time, one identity was rooted in hope, the other was rooted in tragedy, but they both, the conversation around both are about making this country better. And specifically, I'm talking about the marriage equality movement and the series of events that led to what we now know as the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and they're linked in ways that go beyond a quest for, for equal justice. First, public opinion changed. According to the, the Pew Research Center, in 2001, 57% of the American people opposed same-sex marriage. By this year, when the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex couples had a right, a constitutional right to marry, 55% of the nation supported marriage equality, a complete flip. Um, and it was on that day that the Supreme Court ruled, ruled in the Obergefell case. President Obama delivered perhaps one of the best speeches on race uh, since his Philadelphia speech in 2008. And it was his eulogy for Clementa Pinckney, who is the, the pastor and South Carolina senator, 
who was slain with eight others in the Charleston massacre. Now, by the time the president gave that speech, the nation had been groaning under the weight of one shocking uh, and unjustified killing uh, after another of unarmed African Americans. Um, blacks had complained for generations that you know, we're, su we're, we're uh, suffering under undue, I'm mean, sorry, excessive force. Um, we are not getting equal treatment under the law. And the fear of those encounters, particularly with police, led to what is known as the talk. After Trayvon Martin was killed, I wrote about the talk my mother had with me about not running in public. Don't run in public with anything in your hands. Always be mindful of, of where you are. Um, you know, excuse me, how to behave in public, how to interact with the police. And um, there was a plaintiff question by a Baltimore mother that Lester Holt of NBC News interviewed that stuck with me because of just the power of this question, but also how sad it was. And she said, how do you tell your child how to behave when they are not doing anything wrong in the first place? So. Before, before this year, the nation always found a way to dismiss, discount, or even disbelieve the complaints that African Americans had had. But then things changed. You had Eric Garner, John Crawford, LeVar Jones, Tamir Rice, Eric Harris, Walter Scott. Uh, and those are just the ones I'm listing right now. That's just an abbreviated list. But the thing that they all have in common is that they were all on video. We all got to see what blacks had been complaining about and demanding that the entire nation see for generations. And Black Lives Matter grew out of the national revulsion over Eric Garner and the events in Ferguson. And you have to remember that Michael Brown was shot and killed just four weeks after Garner was killed. And remember, Eric Garner's uh, death, his killing, was caught on tape. I mean, that was the, f the first time we all saw someone die due to excessive force, and he wouldn't be the last. And we can go into the complications of the Brown shooting if you want in the Q&A, so I'll leave it at that. But the multi-hued, uh, multi-racial demonstrations that came out of the uh, upset over Garner and Brown and also the lack of an indictment or charges against the police um, is what kind of gave me gave me a little bit of hope. Now the videos were a great were a great e equalizer in that conversation because, as I said, we could all see what what was happening. But just as knowing um, someone gay, uh, let me start that again. When it comes to the marriage equality movement, knowing someone gay was the equalizer here. Remember, in 2001, 57% were opposed. By this year, 55% were supportive of marriage equality, and that's because gay people came out. And it's tough to, um, it's difficult to support something or someone you can't see. So as lesbian and gay people came out, it became more difficult for folks to continue to, to dismiss the concerns of loved ones, coworkers, and neighbors. What also links Black Lives Matter and the marriage equality movement is who specifically is involved. We're not talking about elites ex exerting their influence from above. We're talking about people who simply got tired of systematically being denied 
access to the American dream, equal treatment under the law as guaranteed by the Constitution of, of the United States. And there are two pictures in the marriage equality movement that um, were most moving to me as states started legalizing marriage equality. There was one out of Virginia. It was a male couple. They were in the distance. Their backs were to the camera. They were in cowboy boots, blue jeans, plaid shirts. One had a ponytail. They were holding hands. And one had his hand, uh, I think it was this one, raised in the air with a bouquet of flowers. That's not the vision America had of same-sex couples wanting to get married. There is another picture of a couple in Washington State. As a colleague of mine took one look at their picture and said, they look like a couple of old coots. But they were two guys in camouflage hats, big beards. Uh, one had a cane. The other one had a Harley Davidson neck scarf. And they had their hands up because they were, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, taking the oath. It was, a it was a beautiful picture to see. But again, what the country ended up seeing through those pictures was that people who looked like them, who had lives like them, were not separate and apart of them, from them, but were all pushing to be seen as equal under the, uh, under the law. So with um, every kumbaya moment comes backlash. So the Black Lives Matter movement has been branded a violent anti-cop collective as if demanding accountability of the actions of people endowed with the power of the state and a firearm is a bridge too far. And the so-called religious freedom laws sprouting up around the country and the open defiance of Kim Davis in Rowan County, Kentucky shows that the Supreme Court ruling was not an outright victory for LGBT equality, but really the end of the beginning. I wrote a piece before the Supreme Court ruling saying winning marriage equality is not enough because someone could go into uh, a courthouse, get married uh, at 9 a.m. on Monday, go to their job at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and be fired because there are no protections for uh, sexual orientation and equal protection laws. So um, I've already gone on probably a little too long, but I got to talk about the, the media piece and what might seem like a non sequitur given everything that I've just talked about. Um, the media, in all its glorious messiness, factors prominently in everything I just said. Um, traditional media was the driver in the marriage in getting people to understand um, the marriage equality movement. Social media has pretty much been the primary driver of information and stories involving the Black Lives Matter, or what we, I'm using as an umbrella term, the Black Lives Matter movement. It was social media that um, brought the killing of Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, and so many others to the national, the national forefront. Um, and this is what I call the democratization of information. When I was at Carleton in, in Minnesota, I was, as a student, I was the news director of the radio station. And as the news director, I had access to the wire, to the UPI wire. And so I had much more access to news and information than I could possibly broadcast and that my listeners possibly wanted to hear and know. And that was in the days of three, three television networks, three or four national newspapers, three magazines. So you had a very narrow, um, narrow faucet, smaller faucet to get your information from. Uh, today, you and I, everyone in this room, we all have the same access to the same amount of information. But here's the bad part. 
as a result of that, we're now siloed. We now um, cut ourselves off from opposing points of view. <coughs> and those who don't believe the things that we believe or share the same interests or concerns that we have are somehow uh, evil. Uh, we now get our news and information from institutions, news outlets, journalists, thought leaders who reinforce rather than challenge our worldview. Um, and social media, Facebook and Twitter specifically contribute to making this environment worse. Uh, earlier this year, I shut down the comments on my Facebook page because the racism and homophobia coming through on my comments page had just become too much to bear. I mean, I know as, as, a, as a journalist and a, you know, a little bit of a public figure that comes with the territory, but I'm human. And there's only so many times you can be told you suck before it, <laughs> it starts to affect you. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, you're probably well aware and perhaps a bit weary of my constant refrain, read the piece. Uh, I've even started a hashtag, a hashtag RBYT, read before you tweet. Um, it seems like in 140 characters, I include the link to, the, to my latest piece and a headline to get you to click on the link. And yet, in the age of Twitter, no one clicks the link. <laughs> they react to the headline. So I've had black people and gay people yell at me for things I didn't say, didn't mean, or that are fully ex explained in the piece they chose not to read. So with this democratization of information comes great responsibility. The, the reader, the news consumer, must read with comprehension. He must understand nuance. She must be able to discern fact from hyperbole. He must have multiple sources of information. She must learn how to take all that information and discern the truth or its reasonable facsimile that lies somewhere in the middle. And those are among the, th the, the many things I have to do as a journalist, which is why I push back on those who are cavalier about the news they consume and who are careless in the information they disseminate. And people continually spread lies, false information, half-truths on Twitter, Facebook, and the internet in general seemingly without a care. And look, I know journalists are not perfect. We get it wrong a lot. We are guilty of many of the offenses that drive me crazy about news consumers. And we definitely can and should do better. But I'll tell you this much. If I wrote the way far too many people read or respond to what I write, I'd be fired. So that's why I will continue to hold accountable those who pop off on nothing more than 140 characters of insight and rage. And the ultimate benefit of the democratization of information is shared responsibility and accountability. At least it should be. So that's the end of my tirade, tirade, and that's actually the end of my remarks. So thank you very much again, Tom, for, um, for inviting me here in the Shorenstein Center uh, for the honor of speaking here today. And now on to the fun part, the Q&A. Thank you. So, so uh, Jonathan, if you could, uh, take us for a moment inside these editorial board meetings. Uh, so the media tend to be very good. Uh, <laughs> when an issue takes event form, mm -hmm. um, such as a police shooting, right? Um, less good when you don't have an obtruding event. Um, and uh, 
So poverty, for example, in the black community and the grinding effects of poverty uh, on African Americans. When you make arguments uh, in these editorial meetings for more attention to these aspects of race, uh, what kind of response do you, do you generally get? Well, luckily, I'm on an editorial board that is open, receptive, and quite frankly, I'm not the one who has to lead the discussion. I'm not the one who already comes to the table concerned about and want, wanting to write about these issues. So the conversation around the table, by and large, is one that is we're pretty much of like mind. It's just a matter of how, what's the editorial going to say because it's not um, any particular person writing under their own name. We're writing under the institution of the Washington Post. And so um, those conversations, the one thing we have learned as a result, certainly as a result of the police shootings over the last two years, is to, and I specifically have learned to wait. Because when the shooting happens, what's initially reported, for better or for worse, I mean, I understand when you've got a situation like that, you've got, you've got the information that you have, and then with more reporting, you learn, more, you learn new things, more things, the story changes. And so it's very helpful to wait a few days to see whether things hold up and then comment. And then to see with an editorial board, um, we have the ability to take the 35,000 foot view and see where does this particular incident or story fits into a larger a larger narrative. So if you could, uh, in asking the question, identify yourself uh, first, please. Please. Uh, my name is Ezra. I'm a second year um, master's student in public policy. Um, I, I wanted to ask you more about the Black Lives Matter movement. It's been such a profound media and social media movement. And I'm sh as you know, Hillary Clinton was sort of criticized a lot for meeting with Black Lives Matter activists and telling them that they needed to be more practical or have more concrete policy recommendations for what they, for, or an outlet, or more of a concrete policy outlet for their anger. What do you think of that statement? Do you think that that's true? Do you think that th that, that is necessary? Well, it's interesting, um, and thanks for your question. You characterize, and a lot of people characterize what she said to the activists as criticism, and other people characterize it as sort of much-needed truth-telling to the folks who are in front of her, and not necessarily in a bad way. I saw um, that clip where it looked like it was rather rather heated and tense and she's doing her finger like that but I do think that she said something that was very true and that was um, and I'm paraphrasing you can't just change hearts and minds you have to change laws and if I remember correctly she went back to um, the civil rights movement and say reminding them that you know yeah you're trying to make people change the hearts and minds of people in the country but at the same time you had uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and other folks who were in the courts trying to change the laws that would make the lives of people better and so um, what I would say is 
um, the Black Lives Matter movement has to be able to do both at the same time. Now, I understand that in general they issue having any um, any kind of a top-down power structure, any kind of recognize one leader, and I understand that and I get that. But if they want to go from being just a protest movement to a protest movement that that gets things changed, it's got to come up with some kind of discernible legal strategy uh, that they can point to and say, this is what this is what we've accomplished and here's what more we have to do. Um, I, I think the fact that Hillary Clinton met with them um, is a is a positive sign. The one thing I I keep wondering when this will happen and if it has happened, tell me when will um, folks from under the umbrella of Black Lives Matter take that same message and concern and anger to Republicans. They've gone to Bernie Sanders, they've gone to Martin O'Malley, they've gone to Hillary Clinton, and that's understandable and great, but if you ask me, it's a little bit safe because they know, at least I know, that by going to those three, you're going to a pretty receptive audience. You know Hillary Clinton is going to be at least 50% of the way there with you. But when will someone go and charge the stage of George, I'm sorry, of Jeb Bush? Or be real gutsy and do that to Donald Trump? <laughs> or Ben Carson? And, and Ben Carson, actually, when asked questions about Black Lives Matter, now, I don't agree with, with him in, in substance of what he has to say in terms of his criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement. But I will say this, that he is at least thoughtful. He's at least thoughtful in saying what his objections are, and they're rooted in they're they are rooted in substance, and so maybe they will get a, a, a you know, he'll, they'll get a receptive audience with Ben Carson. But if BLM wants to be more than just out in the streets and a protest movement, they've got to make sure that this is a bipar- a bipartisan effort for understanding. Can't just Hector Hillary Clinton. You gotta go to to folks on the right. The Black Lives Matter movement actually is targeting the GOP and the convention. Just so you know that. Oh that's good. There are plans to do that. Whether they can actually get in there to do it is another question. Mm -hmm. It is is on their agenda. And there is an agenda. And there are several different components to that agenda, not just focused on black lives. Mm-hmm. Some of the other issues that you were addressing, you know, the intersectionality mm-hmm. issues. Okay. So they, they do have that strategy. Good. Great. Campaign I'll look. zero. Campaign zero mm-hmm. is 30, is 30 very specific points that are tied to legislation and other efforts. Last I look back here, it's just you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Please. Hi, um, my name is Christina. I'm a staff writer for the university. Um, I'm wondering what you think of the anger at the Republican establishment. I'm wondering if, how you characterize that or where you think that's coming from. It struck me that sort of my sense, and just somebody who reads a lot about the news, is that there seems to be anger um, 
that somehow the the implicit bargain of the southern strategy, the economic and racial bargain of the southern strategy, has 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 been broken, um, and that um, people are upset that they're the, the middle class and lower middle class and other whites are upset that that this the country is moving in a different direction than what they thought it was moving in, away from them. Right, um, and that the country. As you know, we want to we want to take our country back, um, and various you know, variations on that. I think that yeah, the Republican Party base is really angry, really really angry. Um, several um, Republican analysts have been saying that um, they're really angry because they realize that they've been sort of, they they've been lied to over and over and over again. You said when you took over Congress you were going to repeal Obamacare, yet you haven't done it. You said you were going to not raise taxes, yet you did, if you want to go all the way back to H.W. Bush. And so now you pile on top of that a country that not it, that is moving away from them, meaning their vision of the country, but has already moved. I mean, you look at the the election and re-election of President Obama, I mean, that's a clear sign yet that the country that the Republican Party base thought was thought is their country no is just not there. I mean, President Obama, by historical standards, given where the economy was, unemployment uh, and everything, should not have been re-elected. Yet he was because his coalition from 2008 held firm. And we're going to get another test now without uh, President Obama on the ballot to see if it will still hold firm enough to to put in a Democrat in the White House for a third term, which there hasn't been a third term of a party in the White House since H.W., from Reagan to H.W., and that was the first time in about 100 years. So, um, but in terms of the anger at the GOP establishment. This is a thing that I am most fascinated by and frightened by because you take someone like Donald Trump who has said and done things that would have annihilated anybody else's campaign when in his announcement he said basically said Mexicans are rapists. That would have knocked somebody out. Um, questioning the heroism of John McCain, a sitting U.S. Senator, former POW, <coughs> former the 2008 Republican presidential nominee, that for sure would have knocked some anybody out of a race. The bullying fight and misogyny he is directed towards Megyn Kelly of Fox News, that should have been disqualifying. And yet, and there are other instances, and yet each time he has done these things, his poll numbers don't plummet, they go up. What does that tell you about where the Republican Party is? And then when you factor in Ben Carson's support and Carly Fiorina's support, you've got most of the Republican um, electorate looking to outsiders to change things up. I think that the rhetoric coming from uh, the candidates, particularly Trump and Carson right now, is going to do long-term damage to the Republican Party. Um, 
I mean, all you have to do is look at the GOP autopsy that was put out in 2013. They were pretty clear. These were Republicans who did this report. Not a Democrat in sight, not a progressive in sight, not a lefty in sight, saying to the Republican Party, this is what you must do and pay attention to if we want to win the White House again and be a national party again. And the chief point was we've got to back comprehensive immigration reform because Latinos should be, the Republican Party is the natural home for Latinos, and yet we can't get there because we have a tone that is unwelcoming. And I think Dick Armey had this great line that says, you can't expect someone to go, with, go to the prom with you if you keep calling them ugly. <laughs> and that's, what's ha- that's what he said for in 2013. Now imagine all the things that we have heard since then until the Republican Party and the establishment gets a hold of this, I, I don't see how it, I don't see how it would be able to call itself a, a national party instead of, instead of a white, southern, regional, reactionary party. Please. Um, so I guess this is going a little bit back to Black Lives Matter, but I'm curious your thoughts on sort of the balance between advocacy and action, and also whether the focus should be appealing to people's hearts, particularly as they think of issues of race or appealing to their minds and thinking of more from an economic sense or a I found this to be an ongoing discussion at Kennedy School last year, like whether we need to change racism in our country or whether we need to go direct to systems, or obviously the ideal is both, but is there one way that, that you lean? <laughs> uh, both. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, clearly, that's, that's the way to do it. You know, as you know, I have found in, in my writing, specifically on LGBT issues, um, when it was Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or when it was... Um, marriage equality and what President Obama was doing or not doing, depending on your perspective in the community, um, my frustration was always the f- there's, there's always an inside-outside game. And the folks who are involved in both games pretty much don't understand wh- what the other is doing and don't respect what the other what the other is doing and so you have a situation where the president says he goes to HRC and he said to the human rights campaign and says I know I'm not doing enough I need you to pu- I need you to keep pounding the table and pushing me so here you have the ultimate insider telling people to keep keep pushing me keep being public about this because you know, we know when there's public, you need public pressure from the outside in order to get things moving on the inside. And yet there are people, there are a lot of people who, in, who are involved in the outside game who think that the people who are on the inside are selling out, especially the people who were on the outside and get plucked to go, in, to go inside and be a part of, of making things better. And so... Um, you have to do both. You just have to. And, and whatever movement it is, I think there have to be people on both sides who understand and get what the other is doing in terms of getting to whatever the, long, whatever the long-term goal is. And that doesn't mean that everything is going to be perfect. I mean, the president made, made mistakes, dragged his feet, because 
you know, yeah, you've got this goal right here, but there are 50,000 other things that are happening that are moving him or keeping him from landing this thing. But as we saw with Don't Ask, Don't Tell and marriage equality, eventually, eventually it happens. But it requires not having this short-term, I'm waking up at 9 a.m. and by 6 o'clock this better be solved. It means I'm waking up on September 22nd, 2015, and let's hope that five, ten years from now we will have this, this issue solved. And one last thing, like look at Evan Wolfson, who wrote his, um, I believe it was his either dissertation or law school um, thesis on marriage equality in the 80s, when everyone thought he was crazy to be supportive of same-sex marriage back then. He starts a group called Freedom to Marry in the 90s after he argues the Hawaii case. He is now, in 2015, actually closing shop because he won. That's what I'm talking about. Here's a guy who had a vision, knew where he wanted to go, played both the inside and outside game as somebody who is um, you know, able to argue before the Supreme Court and has, starts an organization for the sole purpose of closing his organization, and there he's doing it. Please. I'm curious, you mentioned a couple times that you know, if you have enough pressure from the outside, you can affect change. But what we've been seeing is, in fact, the social movements kind of blow up in a lot of anger, and it's the judicial system that really is stepping in and enacting change, not acts of Congress. Um, and so I'm curious about, you know, are we at a point at the federal level where mass movements are ineffective or just as ineffective as the insider game? And in that case, how are we going to affect um, legislative outcomes? Does everything now have to come from a, a kind of a Supreme Court, which may or may not be in balance with the other three branches, mm -hmm. the other two branches? Well, I mean, this has been, this is a, a, a phenomenon that's been written about in, definitely since I've been at the Post, so that's eight years, <clears throat> and has gotten worse over time, and that is courts basically doing what the legislative branch should be doing. And that's not because of judicial overreach or anything like that, it's because of the ineffectiveness of the legislative branch, of Congress. Can you name the last major piece of legislation that Congress has passed? aside from the Affordable Care Act, which had no Republican votes. I mean, people vote and send people to Washington to do things, and yet in the last few elections, particularly 2010, they actually elected people to go to Washington to not do things, to shut down the government, to repeal Obamacare, to cut, cut spending to put the um, full faith and credit of the United States at risk because they're tired of too much government spending, never mind that the debt ceiling is about money already spent. So if people don't want the courts stepping in where Congress should be stepping in, then the American people have to get out and vote. And put people, <clears throat> excuse me, and put people in office who will actually do things. I mean, the, the Obama coalition came out in 2008, put him in the White House. They stayed home in 2010, and Republicans took over the House. 
And, you know, there are a lot of people who were warning for 2014, can't, can't sleep on this election, you, you gotta show up, but people don't think off-year elections are sexy. They'll show up for president, they'll show up if Obama's on the ballot, but they won't show up any other time, usually. 2016 will be the test of whether the activism that the president was able to gin up can survive him. Because really, that is the only way. Our system of government is set up so that if Congress won't, Congress won't do it and somebody raises enough of a sting to file a lawsuit, the courts will step in. Can't complain about courts if you've got a Congress that's working. And to my mind, the only way you get a Congress that's working, or at least working on things you want them to, is if people rise up <coughs> in the same numbers as a presidential election and send people to Congress to do the work that they think should be done. So that's a perfect segue to my question, which is to get your take on um, the impact of the voter suppression law. So even if the Republican Party at this point is crazy looking and you know fighting the establishment and all of that, at the state level they have enacted all of these laws which have uh, effectively suppressed a huge part of what would have been described as the Obama coalition. Mm -hmm. So you may end up with a double whammy of, you know, the people stay home because mm -hmm. they don't get it, but then Barack is not on, on the ballot. But at the same time, they, many of them that would like to vote cannot. Mm -hmm. Their polls have been moved in Alabama. If you have to have this legal ID, there's only four places you can go to get one mm -hmm. in the entire state. Mm -hmm. So. This is calculated. I mean, it's they're very frank about it. The Republican state legislators have put all these laws into place. I'm interested to know what you think the impact will be. Well, the Im yes, this is all very calculated, and they've been able to do these things. But the the good thing is, in from the perspective of of Democrats and those affected, they know they know it's already there, and so it's incumbent upon. Uh, the Democratic Party, whoever the Democratic nominee is, to ensure that those folks who are who are eligible to vote get out and vote. Now that's an onerous <coughs> that's that's an onerous uh, thing. <coughs> excuse me, that they're going to have to do um, to overcome these voter suppression efforts. But that's what you got to do until Congress actually passes a law to fix the decision out of the Supreme Court. Um, you see in, you know, these voter suppression laws were on, were on the books in 2012, and the president still won. And that was because his campaign, the DNC, and a whole lot of other advocacy groups worked their butts off to ensure that everyone who had the right to vote could vote. Also, African Americans got upset enough right. to say, um, you're telling me I can't vote? Oh, oh, hell no. I will wait however long it takes to ensure that my vote is cast. That same kind of anger organization has to be there in 2016. I mean, you, know, you already know it's there. It's not like this is being sprung on, on you, you in general, yeah. in, you know, in some sort of October surprise. Um, you know, know it's there, so be prepared for it, while at the same time putting pressure on Congress to actually fix it. Please. Um, have you guys about this issue of silos and, and everybody kind of talking past each other and seeing what they want to hear? Are there any spaces or platforms that you think um, at all overcome that, that kind of force people to engage with 
the other points of view? Um, I can't think of any offhand. I mean, maybe I'm just nostalgic for the, the old days. Well, not so old, because I still get the Dead Tree edition of the paper, and especially on Sunday, and love to sit and turn the page and read and bump into a story I wouldn't have otherwise seen if I were on my computer and just clicking through all the political stories that I want to read or, or need to read in order to do my job. So I'm sure there are platforms out there that um, would allow people to engage. I'm just so in my own silo and bubble in terms of reading, getting up to speed on things, and trying to write enough pieces to not make my editor mad at me um, that I haven't had time to explore beyond what I already do. But I do say to people all the time, especially when I lived in New York and I was writing at, uh, uh, on the Daily News editorial, editorial page, none of my friends and no one else I knew read our paper. They always read the New York Times. Always read the New York Times, always read the New York Post. And when I would say, you know what, good for you. You are getting, you're getting your news from two different sources. Uh, I encourage everybody to get their news from more than one source and certainly more than one ideological perspective. So if there's something on repealing the Affordable Care Act and you're reading about it in the, uh, in the nation, do yourself a favor and go to Red State and see, or, <laughs> see what they're saying about it. Because I find oftentimes um, that I will read something, hear something, learn something that I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had I not um, gone there. And you know, I, I, I dump on Twitter and the people who give me hell on Twitter, but there are m quite a few people who will, in 140 characters, or maybe through several tweets, um, argue with me rationally and show me how my argument is flawed or I should have thought of something else or why didn't I put, put that part in and will spark an idea for another piece. And so, again, that's another good thing about, about uh, the democratization of information is that you know, I'm not the only expert. There are tons of experts out there. And you know, the best way to have, have a good argument is to have a good argument. Hi, um, my name is Kelly Wilson. I work in the um, And I wanted to get your thoughts on Warren Slussey's campaign for presidency, and specifically your thoughts on how much media attention he might actually garner and how much he might actually shift the conversation to be about campaign finance reform, an issue that over 80% of the population agrees is a problem. There being too much money in politics, but the same percentage doesn't think anything will ever happen. So, the yes, I have heard of him. Um, you know, people who are single issue candidates, they're not, they don't go anywhere. And no matter what the issue is, you could have someone on a, on a national level, certainly a presidential, presidential level. You can have single issue folks running for Congress as we, as we've seen, but something like this, even though 80, the majority of the country is in favor of campaign finance reform. That's a n not enough to get people, one, to pay attention to you, and two, to certainly elect you president of the United States. And three, and this is my big problem with this campaign, is it, isn't he the one who said that if you elect me and we get this done, I resign? Yes. Yes. 
I mean, it, it, why on earth would I want to? Then that means whoever he cho chooses as vice president is extremely important. And you'll want to know where is that vice president on a whole host of issues, because that person could be president of the United States on day 100 or year three. You don't know, because you know he's trying to get campaign finance reform through. And if I were a member of Congress and I knew this, I mean, what's stopping Congress from stopping him particularly members of his own party, from getting it passed just so that he serves out a term. I mean, that's, the, that's my, problem, my problem with him and also why I don't think he's being taken seriously. And that's why I also think that when there was the rumors of Vice President Biden running for president early on and, and part of the storyline was he would serve, he would promise to serve one term. Now. I like the vice president. I think he's a nice man. I actually think he would be a good president. There's no way in hell I would want to vote for him knowing full well that he's only going to serve one term. How much would he actually be able to get done when Congress knows that the moment he walks in, he's, he's done, he's not going to run again? So um, I wish um, Mr. Lessing good luck, but I don't think he's even though everyone wants campaign finance reform, I don't think he is the proper vessel. David. Yeah. Um, David Ensor, I'm a Shorenstein Fellow this, this semester. Um, you talked about the ineffectiveness of Congress. And I wonder uh, uh, what your thoughts would be about whether um, activists for social causes, whether, they, whether it be Black Lives Matter or uh, marriage equality activists, um, should uh, put their shoulders to the problems that are making Congress so ineffective. The campaign finance reform we've just been talking about, gerrymandering in the House, and some of the other problems, built-in institutional problems that are causing us to have a Congress that virtually doesn't ever do its job. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. You know, um, it is possible to fight for marriage equality or fight for body cameras on police officers in addition to a whole lot of other things, um, while also lending, lending support to either in name or in, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, even say logistical support, money, what have you, to other causes. Um, <clears throat> because you're right, unless uh, unless you change Congress and who goes to Congress and the way Congress works, you're, a lot of these folks fighting for various things won't get any kind of action from Congress. The marriage equality movement in, you know, intentionally went the court route in the same way um, that African Americans did during the civil rights movement. When it comes to um, criminal justice reform, that has to be Congress. That might be the one area where we actually might see something of significance come out of Congress in the last, well, since the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, there's a, a, an organization called the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, or just NGLTF, I think, is they're, they're just going by their acronym now. They're all focused on LGBT equality. But in the last six months, I've noticed something, a, a, ch a change, more, a more public change in what they're doing. They're not, yes, they're an LGBT advocacy organization, but they're also tweeting out and having conferences and going to conferences that have to do with criminal justice reform, 
with um, uh, voting, voting Rights Act issues. They're reaching beyond their, their core audience to show, like, basically to um, put word in action behind what they say they're about. If you're going to be about equal justice and equality under the law, it can't just be for us. We have to lend our voices to other folks doing the same thing. So they also they they sent out a tweet and and put out a press release when Trayvon Martin was killed. Um, so organizations have to figure out and come together, band together, to not only achieve the goals they want to achieve their specific goals, but also those other long term sort of global issues that would that would help them and other people achieve their goals. I, I just had a point of information question mm -hmm. I was curious about. In talking about uh, marriage equality and the flip in public, um, public move from 57 opposed to 55 in favor, you tied that, I thought I heard you say, to more people coming out. Is there data on the latter? To more? Correlate? To, to more gay people coming out and therefore more of that. I thought that's what I heard you say. Well, yeah, if you go to Pew Research Center in their re religion and life section, they will show you a number of charts where they break it down by party, by, uh, by party ideology, either generation or age. And you will see, and it goes back for as long as they've been doing the poll. And I think it goes back either to the 90s, maybe even to, maybe even to the 80s. And you can see all the lines going up. And, you know, I don't know specifically if it is just anecdotal or if there is somewhere in some vault somewhere, here are the number of people, gay people who have come out in the last 20 years. I doubt it. But there is no question that the fact that LGBT people have been coming out, certainly um, as a result of Stonewall, and definitely as a result of the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s and the 90s. And then you have shows like Will and Grace and others that sort of just tell America, here are gay people and this is what they do. And they have, they have fun, funny lives or you know, they're just as boring and mundane as the rest of us. That once people started coming out, once people started seeing gay people and not just a caricature or myth of gay people that again it just makes it more difficult to turn your back on to deny equal access to opportunity to someone you know and we've seen it we've seen it time and time again and that's why i think those numbers those numbers have flipped I mean, they just don't flip on their own people don't change their hearts and minds on something on an issue like that unless they have had some personal run-in. You just look at Senator Rob Bortman of Ohio, staunchly against marriage equality. Really bad record when it comes to LGBT issues. His son comes out two years before he announces it, and then he announces, you know, my, my kid is gay and I support marriage equality. People gave him a hard time for that, oh, it's only because someone in your family has come out that you are now in favor of this. And I, I was like, 
Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what you want. We take our allies where we can get them, especially if they change, especially if they change their heart and their mind. Hi, my name's Mary Meehan. I'm a Neiman Fellow, and I'm from Kentucky, so I'm going to ask you a Kim Davis question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm, I'm asking about the media coverage of her, because she is a county clerk in a small county. Um, the, the courts in the state have not supported her position, and yet she is on the national and international stage in a way that is, frankly, wackadoo. I mean, why does everybody, I mean, explain that to me. Why does everybody know Kim Davis's name? Because it feels like by giving her this exhaustive and never-ending attention, her very personal opinion, which is not even held by everybody in her county, is suddenly known globally. Um, well, it's because... <laughs> Um, well, one, Evan Wolfson, again from Freedom to Marry, would say, every time I had him on two weeks ago, he would constantly say, Kim Davis is just one county clerk who is doing this, or one of three by that time, but 99.9% .9 of the county clerks are actually doing their jobs, whether they agree with the Supreme Court ruling or not. So we have to make that clear. But Kim Davis was, talk about video, she was seen on video when she was asked, under whose authority are you to de defy the Supreme Court of the United States? And she said, God's authority. I'm not especially religious, um, I'll be maybe a little spiritual, uh, but to hear, hear an elected official say that to people who are trying to exercise their constitutional right was just shocking. Well, maybe and she has a diagnosable mental illness. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> well, more time on camera. Maybe that will make itself known. But here you have a, a, an elected official in defiance of the Supreme Court, federal courts, appeals courts, saying that she is, um, that God is her only authority and she's breaking the law. Then she goes, then she's, she, she'd rather go to jail. Then you have a presidential candidate, I'm sorry, two presidential candidates, both of whom are doing things to try to gin up their support so they can make it into the, the big stage debate that just happened, who are making, turning her into a rat, she has now become a symbol. So that's why this one lone clerk in this one, county office in Kentucky has become a flashpoint in this new version, this new version of the culture wars. And I was, um, what day was that? That was a, the day she was released from prison, that was a Tuesday, and I was anchoring the five o'clock MSNBC show from Washington, and we were coming up at the end of our hour, three o'clock, I'm sorry, we we're coming up at the end of our hour, I, I asked our reporter, so when does she go back to work? And she's talking about what well, we don't know. And out of the corner came this Confederate flag. And I'm sitting there, and my mic is dead, but I'm screaming and pointing, oh my, oh my, can you believe this? So you have this person who's become a flashpoint, not only in the culture wars, but also to your question about the GOP establishment, where you have it all coming together in this one spot, and then to add to the circus-like atmosphere, you have this 
woman and her husband who just defy it's like did is this are we being punked here is this a reality show because the husband with his hat and the overalls and the everything i just thought if i had not seen it with my own eyes and <laughs> that this is something that is like an andy cohen creation for bravo or mark burnett because it's just too otherworldly. So, well, Kim, I would argue that if it's too otherworldly, uh, national media isn't spending enough time in flyover countries. Well, you're not going to get an argument from me I on mean, that. It's not that otherworldly <laughs> as a place that I live. Right, and now, and now, Kim, now everyone knows who Kim Davis is, and they are paying attention to what she's doing, and which is a good thing because now the news is out of her, out of her county clerkship is that she is interfering with marriage licenses. So now we're pay we're, everyone's now paying attention to what she's doing, which is not right. So we have time for one more question. And uh, so that's pressure. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> Better be good. <laughs> We've talked a lot about what it took to get us to marriage equality. Um, I would love to hear what you think it will take to get us to uh, broader non-discrimination protections for LGBT people. Um, and I think you know the obstacles are clear at the federal level and a good number of states. It seems like maybe there's an education component where a lot of folks think they already exist. But like, right. if you were at HRC or you were Liver and Cox or whatever, what do you want to see happen? Well, I was uh, writing for a few months before the Supreme Court ruling, hey folks, it's not over. Like, don't think that if the Supreme Court rules in favor of marriage equality that that's it, that everything is done. Michelangelo Signorelli wrote an entire book whose title is It's Not Over, warning people that marriage is not, is not victory, that you have, uh, I think it's 21 states, either 21 states don't have um, equal protection for sexual orientation and employment or 21 states do. I think it's 21 states do. So you have all these, you have all these states, Mississippi, for example, where people can, today can get married, but they can get fired and lose their homes and lose their families. And so people have to take all of that energy that they had in getting national marriage equality rights and, and also in their states to now focus that energy on making sure that their states' laws match what's happening at the federal level and then at the federal level to ensure that sexual orientation is either added to the Civil Rights Act or there's an omnibus bill or omnibus law that wraps in sexual orientation by itself for housing, sexual, uh, housing employment uh, and other things because other, I mean, what good is getting married if you can get fired, lose your home, lose your kids, um, and I don't think a lot of gay people were prepared or ready. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.